TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now... Here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear from an area congressman who withdrew from consideration for a cabinet position in the Trump administration after a story about legislation surrounding opioids painted him in an unflattering light. He told us that story is not as it seems. We'll hear from a physician in the Geisinger Health System about the provider's approach to addiction and how it's a personal situation for him and his family. And we'll get details from the author of a recent report about the challenges communities in the nation's Rust Belt continue to face. United States Congressman Tom Marino of the 11th Congressional District was an early supporter of candidate Donald Trump among his colleagues and campaigned with the future president throughout Pennsylvania. His allegiance merited him a cabinet post nomination for director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, commonly called Drug Czar. In May, Congressman Marino withdrew his name for consideration, citing family issues. President Trump nominated him again in September. In mid-October, 60 Minutes in the Washington Post collaborated on a story featuring a whistleblower who alleged that a bill sponsored by Marino watered down the power of the Drug Enforcement Administration to go after pharmaceutical distributors who were funneling unreasonable amounts of pills around the country. Marino withdrew his name from consideration for the drug czar position days after the reports hit the news cycle. This week, he spoke to us about that situation and explained the reasons behind the legislation from his perspective. I, in my, in my district, uh visited a couple of pharmacies and outside my district and heard from pharmacists in uh, 2014 that they were having a very difficult time getting the drugs they needed for their cancer patients, uh, senior citizens, people who needed pain medication because of just a terminal or constant issue they had to deal with. So I went back to my office. I said to my staff, let's look into this. Let's find out what's going on here. And we did an extensive amount of uh, research, and we found out that this is true, that people, the pharmacists, weren't able to get the medication for the patients. And the reason that we found out that this was happening is because there was a DEA agent who uh, just went into the distributor, not the pharmaceutical company, not the pharmacy, went to the person who gets the drug from the entity, gets the drug from the pharmaceutical company, and then sends it to the pharmacy or hospitals, that uh, he was just shutting them down without any notice or without any I refer to it as indication that they were doing anything wrong. 
I'm not saying that, that all distributors are playing by the rules, but most of them were. And we found out that there's legislation from years and years ago that said that the DEA could go in and shut a distributor down who, because of eminent danger. Well, the problem with that is we found out that eminent danger in legislation had no explanation as to what eminent danger meant. It just said eminent danger. And you know, in legislation, we have to explain everything. So we started working on legislation that explained what eminent danger means. And there was also a report by the General Accounting Office, uh, the go- excuse me, the Government Accountability Office put a report out that said there is uncertainty regarding whether the DEA has a thir- authority to stop the drugs like this based on the fact that there's no explanation of what imminent danger is, and Congress needs to look at this and explain what it means by imminent danger. So we did, and it's you know a high probability that uh, people uh, are in danger or dying because of opioids, and we know that's the case, but this agent tried to link it to the distributor instead of when I was a district attorney and U.S. attorney, how we followed things like this because I prosecuted cases like this. Uh, the distributor would call to a DEA's attention, and there seems to be an increase in the order of these drugs, oxycontin, oxycodone, things of that nature, in a particular area. But we had this agent who said, you're being held responsible for this and we're shutting you down. And I've been told this agent was asked by the distributors, why are you doing this to us? Because I can. And, well, what is the meaning of eminent danger? And the agent says, it's whatever I say it is. I don't like that. The law is the law. It's not up to an individual agent, I don't care who they are, to determine uh, what the meaning is. So we clarified that. And in 2014... Uh, it went through the Energy and Commerce Committee that had jurisdiction over it. It's only a two-and-a-half-page, double-spaced piece of legislation that says what eminent danger is. So it passed by voice vote in the House, Republicans and Democrats. Nobody opposed it. Then it went over to the Senate, but in 14, the Senate really did nothing with it. So then, uh, or just before 14, they did nothing with it. We, we uh, submitted it again, went to Energy and Commerce, voted out of Energy and Commerce again in the House. Voice vote, no one voted against it, passed on the floor. Everyone voted for it sent it to the Senate. And meanwhile, I want to make clear that we were working with the DEA on this language. Now, the one agent didn't like it, but the DEA people that we were working with said, we can live with this. So then it was sent over to the Senate, and as the Senate usually does, they change things a little bit. And Senator Hatch, a Republican, Senator Whitehouse, uh, worked on it a little bit. They worked with DEA and the Justice Department, and then they tweaked uh, the imminent danger language a little bit more. They checked with us. They said, Tom, do you have any problem with this? Nope, that's fine, as long as everybody's on board. Everybody was on board, DEA, Justice Department, and it went to the president, and he signed it. Now, at any given time, a senator could have stopped that in its tracks, and no one did. And now, because a couple of senators are up for re-election over there, they're running with their tail between their legs because of this bogus 60-minute and uh, Washington Post report that I colluded with the drug industry uh, because uh, they donated to my campaign. Well, I don't care who. 
who donates to my campaign that has no effect on how I see the law. I fought drug dealers and put programs together my whole career for people that were addicted to drugs. And I'm pretty darn proud of the way that worked because had I been the appointed to the drug czar's mission, one of my plans was to really go after the prevention inpatient treatment and travel around the country and see where our money's what's happening with our money and uh, following the budget. But this agent was removed from his position. On 60 Minutes, he said he had 600 people or 400 people that he supervised, and then the next day he found, he found out that he was removed from that and didn't have authority anymore. So the, the agent that you are referencing, I'm assuming, is the 60 Minutes whistleblower, is that right? Yeah, and whistleblower. Yeah, he's not a whistleblower. Well, that's Whistle- what the story was called, so that's why I used yeah, that. Yeah, right, right. I understand that. You know, whistleblowers tell us when something goes wrong. This guy had an axe to grind. He didn't like the idea uh, that he was removed. And now this so-called whistleblower is saying that who, and also he said, any of us who voted for this are helping drug dealers. We're supporting drug dealers. Now, you know me better than that when it comes to particular drug dealers. I put a lot of those people away and helped a lot of people who were addicted. But this guy says that the DOJ upper echelon put pressure on him uh, not to do his job, which is ridiculous because I've worked with DEA agents all my life. They're the best agents out there, and they're following the law. I have no problem with it. So then he he mysteriously resigned, and now he's working for plaintiff lawyers uh, who are suing the pharmacy companies, and he's on a retainer as a consultant. Now here's a guy who criticized other people for going to work for the drug industry, and look where he's at. He's uh, he's with the plaintiff's lawyers who are trying to make big money. And also, the language that we put in for imminent danger is the same type of language, and I'm using this as an analogy. Years and years ago, government would go in and shut coal mines down, again, without any particular uh, law saying what the evidence they had to shut it down. So it's basically the same thing that uh, the coal industry has, and it's working fine. And the DEA agents have told me since then it's a great relationship because now the distributors are bringing information to the DEA's attention. And you don't go to the DEA and ho- you don't go to the distributors to hold them responsible. What they, sh- what they should have done, this guy should have done, is said, all right, tell me what pharmacies are ordering these drugs who are ordering these drugs what hospitals and then you go to the pharmacy and say hey why are you ordering so many of these and who is prescribing them and what doctors and of course most doctors aren't over prescribing but there are those who are out there doing it now uh, let me stop you there does the dea have the latitude right now to do what you're saying which is go to pharmacies that are receiving big shipments of opioids to find out where do they have the latitude to do that they have it because and i'll tell you i'll tell you why before my legislation they uh were not shutting down this specific area of large amount of opioids being sent around the country after our legislation and i want to emphasize there were democrats in the house who were on this legislation with me they co-sponsored it and in the senate republicans and democrats and it was brought up in a hearing the other day when one of the Democrats in the House who was on the bill with me asked the agent, well, look, before our bill, you had this low amount of 
uh, addressing this issue. After our bill, the numbers went up, and this actually helped you. And the DEA, when questioned last week, uh, was asked, does, it, what, does this bill hinder you? And the deputy assistant that was uh, testifying said, no way does this bill hinder us doing our job. Uh, Tom, who is the Democratic uh, representative who, who asked that question? What kind of hearing was this? Uh, the hearing was an energy and commerce hearing where the chairman asked DE, brought DEA in to a public hearing uh, on this issue. What are the problems? Is there something preventing you from doing your job? And plus the DEA was supposed to send a report on, I don't know if it was a six-month basis or a yearly basis, on how things were going. They never sent that. So they were really taken the task uh, by the committee, the Republicans and Democrats. And it was the Democrat who brought this out to the DEA saying, well, look, you're doing more work now with our legislation. What's the problem? They couldn't answer the question. I want to make it clear that you know, the government accountability said the old law isn't clear. Let's fix it. And we did. And the, people, the, the deputy assistant who testifies says, this isn't preventing us from doing our work at all. And then you have this guy go out because he's got an axe to grind, and he goes to someone like 60 Minutes in the Washington Post. Uh, come on. And I, uh, Orrin Hatch and even who was a Republican in the Senate, and Senator Whitehouse, who's a Democrat, who sponsored it over there. And you know, like the Senate usually does, they take our bill and change it, put their name on it, and I never had a problem with it. And they had some real nice uh, op-eds, the Washington Post and others, saying this is nothing but... A uh, couple of senators over there who are worried about being reelected. And so, without even reading my legislation, two and a half pages double spaced, where the only language was changed was two lines in a paragraph, and they said they didn't have a chance to read it. Well, they voted for it. And the one senator said, well, I raised Kane with my staff and told them, you know, he was blaming his staff. Any person. Any elected official who blames their staff uh, is pathetic because even on a suspension vote, we get a list, the House and the Senate, as what votes in committee and on the floor during debate were voted on unanimously, meaning no one voted against it. And it's there for them to read. It's just that they didn't read it. They didn't take the time to read it, and they blame their staff, which is, I think, is it's, it's, the hypocrisy is extraordinary. And so, because they're in trouble in other states, they figure, well, let's go after this bill that they didn't even read, and they just paid attention to, someone brought to their, to their attention that, hey, Marino's uh, getting money from uh, the uh, drug industry. I have a lot of people uh, lobbyists and people in my district and around the country who donate to my campaign. And if you want to look back to this senator's, uh, his campaigns, he's got a heck of a lot more money from me uh, than me who, from senator? the drug industry. Which senators? Manchin from West Virginia. Okay. okay. Now, Tom, based upon what you said, yes. which seems to, to make some sense, and they've had some hearings, why didn't you fight this more vigorously when it could have been fought in the aftermath of the 60 Minutes piece? And why didn't you explain it to keep your name in contention as drugs are? Because I was what is normally done. I was ready to go before 
the Senate Judiciary Committee for confirmation. And what is tradition always told to the person going to the committee, do not do any of your interviews, do not do any speeches, do not do any... Uh, they sometimes even tell you not to vote, but I still go to D.C. and vote. And it was, you're going to come up for a hearing. You can explain all this at the hearing. Do not say a word about this. Why did you feel compelled to withdraw your name? Because I didn't want this to get in the way of the other work that we're pursuing, like uh, the tax, the budget, uh, reducing the taxes. You know, the president has enough stuff being thrown at him. I thought that it's just best for me to step aside so they can't use me as a lightning rod because we have to get the business of this country going. And one of the most important things is getting this tax bill going. And that's why I did that. And the president said to me, uh, look, is there something else that we can do? And I said, no, let's just take, let's take care of this business. And then sometime down the road, uh, if, if I'm interested, you and I will talk. But uh, you know, I, I would have been a good uh, drug czar because of my past experience of going after the drug dealers and the way I helped set up the drug court in my county, the way I helped set up the education and DARE programs in the schools, and how passionate I am and uh, want to bring this epidemic to its knees. And the people that I was thinking about setting around me, we could have done this. Are you planning on running for office again, Tom? Yeah, why not? I have work to do. Okay. I'm still sticking with the uh, working on the, the opioid issues, which are, are uh, very important to me. Uh, I have been working on opioid issues for the longest time since I've been in, uh, in Congress. I mean, there are bills that... Uh, uh, that I've worked on. I was uh, one of the original sponsors of what we call the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act and that uh, had the federal government sent out to the state's largest amounts of money for prevention, for law enforcement. That's U.S. Congressman Tom Marino of the 11th District talking about controversial legislation voted on unanimously by his colleagues and signed by President Obama that later derailed his nomination for U.S. drug czar. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Northeastern Pennsylvania has been decimated by the nationwide opioid epidemic. Lackawanna and Luzerne counties have been singled out, along with 10 other counties, by Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro as among the hardest hit in terms of fatalities from the crisis, which killed 4,642 people statewide last year. Dr. Perry Meadows, Medical Director of Government Programs for the Geisinger Health Plan, decided last year to talk about how this epidemic has visited his own doorstep. He does so during governmental testimony, public forums held across the state, and to his own patients. He recently joined us to share information on how one of the area's largest medical providers is approaching this issue on a number of levels. Well, it's actually started, oh, it's been 16, 17 years ago now. My stepson had a work-related injury, and um, 
was put on medication, then he had multiple surgeries. This was, this was long after he had moved out of the house and was on his own, and he continued getting increasing doses of uh, various medications, including opiates and benzodiazepines. And when the doctor finally cut him off, he, he switched over to heroin. Uh, since that time, he's had multiple overdoses. He's been in and out of, in and out of multiple rehabs. Unfortunately, I've, I fall in the class of an enabler because when you're a parent, you want to do anything and everything you can for your children. My wife and I made a lot of mistakes. We, we admit that. We've learned from our mistakes, and the, one of the big reasons that I speak out is to help others try to learn from my mistakes. I think that's a good thing to do, and a lot of people have been held back by family secrets and uh, drug addiction. Addiction in general is so shameful to so many different people that they often suffer in silence. So um, to hear that you have that kind of connection at least shows that others, I believe, Dr. Meadows, should start speaking publicly as well about what they're going through, because this not only impacts someone in their family, but also uh, you and your wife and uh, your children. Right. I mean, it was a serious effect on on the children. Actually, my uh, son uh, was six years old at the time, and he he saw me doing CPR on his uh, older brother in the hallway uh, when he had an overdose at our home in Cincinnati. And that has caused him significant issues over the years. I mean, he's, he's been through counseling. He's had a lot of, um, a lot of pain from that incident. The thing that's, that's truly helped me is speaking out, but for the longest time I didn't speak out. And the reason I didn't speak out is because I didn't want anybody to know. But then I realized last year when I started talking about it that it was actually healing for me, and it has allowed me to connect with a lot of different people who are in the same situation that I'm in. And like you said, this this is a disease that doesn't discriminate based upon uh, gender, socioeconomic status, race. It can affect anyone and everyone. We have uh, seen some things happen uh, recently where uh, the president has come out and declared the opioid crisis a health emergency. And I think that a lot of people were already aware of that, Dr. Meadows. But as a as a, a medical provider and as a, a system, how how do you see the announcement by the president to the country that this is a very serious issue? I think the big thing that the, the announcement does is it uh, really puts it in the forefront. There, there are still a lot of people, believe it or not, that uh, don't see this as, a, as big an issue as it really is. Right now, if you look at numbers nationwide, uh, in the time that we've been talking, Sue, which is about uh, five minutes now, at, one, at least one person in this country has died from an overdose. Seven to eight people die every hour from an overdose. The, the announcement puts it in the forefront. It really puts the, puts the force of the federal government behind it now. Now, the final report from the Opioid co- co- Commission that the president established a few months ago is supposed to be out later this week or uh, next week. I'm very interested to, to see what the what the final recommendations are and how those recommendations are implemented. Geographically, our region of the country, Pennsylvania proper, where we are in northeastern Pennsylvania, Dr. Meadows, we've really been we've been slammed by this, and maybe that's why 
it makes it uh, very personal for a lot of people here. I'm sure in other parts of the country, it's not quite uh, what we have. Do you have any idea or any kind of knowledge as to why this area, northeastern Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania proper, has been uh, struck so predominantly by this? As far as Pennsylvania proper, I really really don't have any uh, first-hand knowledge of why. I mean, I could I could speculate. We're close to multiple ma- major metropolitan areas. If you look at, um, you know, the economy is some, you know, some would consider to be down a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm originally from West Virginia, and it, West, West Virginia has been very hard hit. West Virginia is right on a direct pipeline from the Midwest. There's a, been a significant economic downturn in West Virginia, and that's, that's what that's what we blame we blame it on down there. So I think a lot of the a lot of the same same factors play into it in the Northeast. If you look at our Geisinger Health Plan membership, uh, two thirds of the people that have a diagnosis of uh, opiate use disorder live in Luzerne and Lackawanna, or, or have addresses in our system in Luzerne and Lackawanna County. That's a lot. And I know as a system, you and uh, the other administrators of your system have been looking for some ways to change this paradigm. One of the things that uh, I read on the the Internet about uh, Geisinger is that they are looking very seriously about the long-term efficacy of using opioids to treat pain. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because we've had people who called our show, Dr. Meadows, and they've said to us, we are responsible about our medications. We've been on them for a long time, and now our doctors are giving us grief over them. So I guess there's another end of this, too, that we've been hearing. Can you explain a little bit about that particular research? What we've, what we've seen here at Geisinger, uh, there's actually been a decline in opiate prescribing over, over time. It had, it's not just been a recent start, and a lot of that has uh, been with uh, education of providers, education of parents or patients. Um, also, we continue to look at alternatives for use of opiates uh, with the treatment of pain. Okay, and when you do that, is there? A, we also heard from people that there might be uh, further limitations on prescriptions of opioids in the Geisinger system in the new year? Is that right or is that not right? Well, in, um, in August, the uh, uh, Department of Human Services that uh, runs the Medicaid program in Pennsylvania required all health plans to implement uh, prior authorization criteria for, for opioids. Geisinger Health Plan has a significant uh, Medicaid membership in the Northeast. So I'm sure you've, you've heard about that. Now, policies went into effect for adults, uh, September 15th. So it was a it was a big change for providers, members, and the health plan. Again, as I said, these were these changes were mandated uh, by Medicaid, and uh, we have implemented them. Um, we're starting to see a decrease in some of the denials, though. I think providers are getting more comfortable with it. I think members are getting more comfortable with it too. As a as a physician myself, the main thing for me is that. Uh, individuals get the medication they need at the time they need it in a proper dose and a proper form. We want to make sure that uh, people are receiving the best quality care possible. Have you received complaints from members, though, Dr. Meadows, that they uh, cannot get their pain medications like they used to and that they truly need them and this has become something where they feel uh, either punished or um, that the people are looking at them with a jaundiced eye because they receive these medications and they do use them properly? You know, I, I have heard some of that. Um, 
in a lot of instances, uh, when we're doing prior authorization reviews, we don't we don't receive a lot of the information we need. And in a number of cases, when we do receive the information, we go ahead and approve it. You're right. There there are a lot of people out there that have been on these medications for a while. They do take them responsibly, and those are the people that we that we need to work with to make sure that they don't fall between the cracks. So they do continue to get the medications that they need. In terms of uh, using too many uh, of these drugs, though, I was at a presentation, a different one than we were at, that they said too many of these pills at once can actually lead to more pain for a patient. Is that an accurate statement? That, that is correct, yes. Okay. Uh, so I guess what we need to start doing, Dr. Meadows, as partners in all this, is just saying to people look at the way you're doing this and make sure that you're not sabotaging your recovery further? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we need a lot, to... A lot, of, a lot of that involves uh, education. We need to educate our community. We need to educate our providers. One of the things that I'm very intimately involved with, probably more involved than uh, with anything else right now, is a lot of community education programs. Not only like the one you attended, but in a variety of formats and forums. Do you appeal in any of these community presentations to the the young generation um, to see if, again, these things can somehow, in their mind, uh, equate to something that, that may be dangerous or deadly to them? I mean, what is, what is the strategy for, you know, looking at this with a young generation and um, getting them to, to see it as a potential problem in, in their future? Well, Sue, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the uh, younger generation. We've been working with uh, the Greater Susquehanna Valley United Way out of Sunbury and a nonprofit out of Lewisburg called DJ Choices. What we've done is that we have uh, worked with these two organizations to develop school-based programs, and we just completed a number of uh, programs in various schools in the Northumberland County region as we're as we're trying it out and seeing what what method of delivery works, uh, it involves um, the use of uh, rock music interspersed with videos containing statistics and information on substance abuse. My favorite part of the show is uh, well, my second favorite part of the show is the laser lights. We also have videos of individuals uh, in recovery. We just did one at Shikalemi High School Friday afternoon. And we had two people uh, on video that told their story in recovery. And then we had one mother who lost her son a year ago. And she's just started speaking out in the last couple of weeks. Once they hear the story, then the room goes dark, and then the lights come up, and these, these folks that they saw on the video actually come out on stage and speak, speak to the kids, and then they, they're available afterwards for, for the kids to talk to. And just talking to some of the students afterwards, not only at the one at Shikalemi, but the ones that we've done in other, other schools in the area, uh, it's, a, it's very powerful when they actually see these people in person. And it's made a big impact. There's been quite a few students that have come forward and asked for help or uh, referred others for help as a result of these programs. Boy, I'm really happy to hear about that because I, I think that that educational component and what was discussed of trying to break this problem during a, a, a particular generation is such a wonderful idea. I also know that 
doctors and, and pharmacists and others are, I think, starting to view these medications in a different way. And I think when we spoke, I think it was you, but I can't remember specifically, we talked a little bit about your own medical training and how back in the day, doctors didn't spend too much time during their training considering substance abuse of any kind, right? Well, not only that, but back when I trained 30 years ago, uh, we were taught that pain was a fifth vital sign. Not only did we have to assess pain, but that patients had a right to be pain-free. And we were taught that we should do whatever we could to get, to get patients pain-free. Turns out now that maybe treating pain as a fifth vital sign was not the most appropriate thing to do. I also understand that uh, patient satisfaction surveys in the past had uh, some questions about uh, whether or not individuals who were hospitalized thought that they were in a, in a good state. In, a, in other words, you know, what, what was their pain like while hospitalized? Is there uh, any attempt by Geisinger to revisit patient satisfaction in regard to that? Are you, are you looking at a, a different way to assess the, uh, the quality of treatment a patient receives in the hospital or elsewhere without uh, relying so much on those questions? I can't really speak to what the uh, hospitals are doing themselves, but I know that I'm a, I'm a patient in the Geisinger system. My primary care doctor's here, and I I know that the surveys that I receive uh, don't talk about pain, don't talk about medication. They talk about um, demeanor and service and quality. They're much more generic surveys, but they really seem to get to the heart of uh, what we would want to know about the quality of care that you receive at the at the office. Geisinger also obviously has to work in conjunction with its partners to approve the uh, uh, rehabilitation treatment of certain individuals, Dr. Meadows. And we know that we often hear 28 days, and sometimes that doesn't even pan out. It's more like 14 or, or whatever. But is there a changing philosophy about um, trying to decide what kind of treatment and for how long patients who are sincere about a recovery get using their plans? You know, I, I think it varies depending on what region of the country you're in and what, um, what the, resources, the resources are that are available in that area. I know here in, um, here in the Danville area, there really aren't a lot of, a lot of resources available for um, people in terms of inpatient services. There's a, there's a limitation on the um, number of inpatient facilities. No, we, have, we have really good outpatient services down here. I know that up in the Northeast we have, we have Geisinger's uh, facility called Marworth, which is an inpatient facility that also has outpatient services, and they, they do a very good job, but it's often difficult to get a bed there. I think one, one of the things that we need to work toward as a nation is having the appropriate level of treatment available for the appropriate person at the appropriate time. I tell you from, from personal experience with my stepson, he'll walk in and say, I'm ready to get help, but that, that window of opportunity may only last for an hour or two. And there were quite a few times when he asked for help and we couldn't find a place to get him the help at the, at the time he asked for it, and then the window was gone. Dr. Perry Meadows is Medical Director of Government Programs for the Geisinger Health Plan. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Industrial decline in former manufacturing hubs has been a big problem for cities in places like Pennsylvania. Although the industries have gone, there are pension obligations, debt issues, and other financial struggles facing some areas that haven't been able to replace that base. Add in climbing poverty, and it's a recipe for concern on the part of municipal leaders. Stephen Ide, Senior Fellow for Urban and Policy at the Manhattan Institute, recently joined us to discuss a report he authored on revitalization in the Rust Belt. Well, my work focuses on state and local fiscal issues. So I've looked at, you know, the problems of debt, taxes, pensions in places like California, Detroit, Michigan, and here in New York City. Um, And in this report, I take a kind of broad look at those fiscal challenges as they exist um, in the Rust Belt and the former industrial areas in the Midwest and Northeast. I I hate to be selfish about this stuff, but uh, Pennsylvania does appear in this report. So can you give us a, a little bit of an insight into that. Well, you know, the challenges that places like Erie, Redding, Scranton, and and Pennsylvania are facing are, in many respects, similar to what's going on in Michigan, Ohio, and even Connecticut and Massachusetts. Um, You know, long-term decline in in the manufacturing jobs and the tax base related to that. But at the same time that the population has been declining and also the poverty rate has been increasing in these places, um, their debt load, their per capita debt load in inflation-adjusted terms has been increasing. And they've also been increasing the amount that they owe for pensions and retiree health care liabilities. So at the same time that they're in basically increasing the promises, their long-term fiscal promises that they're making, um, the tax base that stands behind those promises has become weaker and weaker, raising questions about, you know, where, the, where are all this is headed? In some cases, um, you know, you've, you've seen bankruptcy, you've seen insolvency. But in all cases, you, what you see is more and more money from the budget going to pay for the cost of, past, of the past instead of strengthening services in the present. Yeah, you got a smaller pot and you have uh, increasing poverty. It just, it seems like a, a recipe for disaster um, in terms of, of where we go from here. Because I think it says in your report that a lot of these places that are Rust Belt areas and cities, they've kind of held their own on this. And it's like, I guess, trying to tread water when you're drowning. Um, what's the prognosis for the future? Right. Not everybody is going to have be as bad off as, say, Flint, Michigan, Youngstown, Ohio, um, Detroit. I mean, these are places with big challenges. Scranton's poverty rate is much lower than those places. But at the same time, Scranton is pretty far off from where New York City and Boston are right now. I mean, those are real vibrant comeback cities. So most cities kind of find themselves on a spectrum, but you know, they have to be very realistic in terms of what they can expect in the near term and also what they can affect by means of policy. I mean, there's just there are just so many factors that that cannot be influenced at, this, at the local level. Okay. So uh, should they, I hate to say things like this, should they be looking to other levels to help them out? Uh, You know, if they if they can't afford it, do you think that they'll have to I don't know, in Scranton's case, Steve, which is the one I think about a lot is they've been a distressed city for a very long time. Some have suggested that perhaps the the one thing that might be able to save them is a bankruptcy filing. But then people say, well, if Scranton files bankruptcy, it gives a judge kind of a leverage to come in and slap taxes on on people that they can't afford. So they 
look like they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania, to my knowledge, have ne- has never had a like full-on bankruptcy. I mean, there have been cities that tried to file for bankruptcy, like Harrisburg, Scranton. It's kind of this, you know, perpetu- this cycle of brinksmanship where they're almost on the verge of insolvency, then somehow it's, they back off. It's going to give at a certain point. I mean, the fundamentals are so weak. My, I mean, I prefer state oversight. Whether you're talking about a bankruptcy or not, I, I prefer to see state governments kind of step up and take take control. I mean, in the case of Pennsylvania, you do have a history of the state government trying to do something for many cities, but you know, a lot of people are dissatisfied with how far that that has gotten. So maybe at a certain point, Pennsylvania is going to need to need to think, think about need to revisit its approach to state oversight as well. Yeah, and uh, Pennsylvania, of course, as a state, has its own gaping fiscal challenges based upon the kind of things that you just talked about, which are pension obligations. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a situation in Connecticut as well, where you have a city that Hartford, the capital, is now on the verge of bankruptcy. But the state also has one of the worst funded pension systems um, in the nation. And so local officials are Hartford, in Hartford are saying, wait a minute, you guys are going to come in and tell us how to get our finances <laughs> in shape? Like, look at your own books. But um, And that's a pretty legitimate criticism um, because the states have been so der- fiscally derelict in so many ways. But, you know, at the local level, sometimes it just becomes this political logjam, and politically speaking, they just can't, you know, summon up the strength they need to to make the decisions that they need to make. At the state, when when the state comes in and the state is willing to be the bad guy, sometimes that creates a little bit of political space. Um, and, and ultimately, I think the states are just, just going to fall in the state's lap one way or the other. The federal government is not coming to the rescue. It's just a question of whether when the states intervene and and how. And also Pennsylvania is saddled with um, a business tax that is one of the highest in the country. So even trying to say to people, listen, (laughs) come to Pennsylvania, it just seems to be such a a tall order. Of course, Pennsylvania has also shed a lot of manufacturing. Um, You know, locally, we've we've shed some things, not as uh, obvious as uh, the collapse of the steel industry, per se, in the western part of the state. But where we live over the years, I mean, we've had the the slow decline where we used to have a, a vibrant mining situation because we have anthracite coal. We had also production factories that made things like uh, dresses, flat screen TVs, and now, or TV screens. Now it seems not as optimistic that, you know, industry wants to come to Pennsylvania at all. Yeah, in terms of, and in terms of the tax situation, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty about manufacturing. I mean, you know, maybe some manufacturing could come back someday if you're talking about higher, you know, you know, manufacturing that's higher quality, you know, fewer jobs, who knows. But the tax issue, which is the first point you raised, look, when you have these elevated debt and retirement benefit liabilities, businesses rightly see those as a tax increase waiting to happen. I mean, if your debt is very, very high, it's difficult to lower taxes, and if anything, it looks like they're just going to have to go up at a certain point. So, you know, to keep to at least hold the line on taxes, you got to somehow come to terms with these with these legacy cost burdens, and that is something that you can do. Cities do have authority over their budgets. Like, let's let's talk about that, and let's stop speculating about you know the global economy, which is going to be influenced by so many things, so many other factors that that can't be controlled at the municipal level. When you say coming to terms, what what do you mean by that? I mean, are they just going to have to in the future, um, 
you know, open contracts or when contracts are up, be uh, much more harsh when it comes to the negotiations of these municipal contracts? I think in many blue state situations, which is the common, which is what you have throughout the Rust Belt, um, government unions do have more influence over the, the their compensation their compensation packages. Excuse me, than is that benefits the common good. We're going to have to have a discussion about that. And in terms of the retirement benefit promises, look, if you if you're if you if there hasn't been any substantive economic progress over the last few decades, it's a really bad idea for you to be making pension promises that are not going to come due in like 50 years because who knows where you will be in 50 years. I mean, hopefully you won't be that much worse off, but are you going to be like substantially better? Are you going to be back to where you were in the 1950s? Probably not. So let's start budgeting for the near term instead of pushing these legacy costs way off into the future. You know, it's just an economic Hail Mary to think that that you're going to be able to pay these, that you're going to be a better position to pay these things off 50 years from now than you are now. You also address in your report uh, property taxes and how much of of that income uh, states are dependent on. And and where we live, Steve, I must say that that issue is uh, very important to the people who live in in our area of Pennsylvania, although in other areas, not so much. Um, How does that play into your report? Well, there are a couple of ways that the property tax issue becomes... Uh, you know, salient in these debates about the future Rust Belt. I mean, you know, property taxes are, are very high in, in, in these in, in Connecticut, New Jersey, the p- property tax politically very charged issue because they're already very high and people don't want to see them go higher. The other issue is like, what has happened to your property tax base? As the economy has changed, more and more of the tax base, and I know this is the issue, an issue in Pennsylvania, um, has been occupied by not tax-exempt institutions, mm-hmm. um, higher ed, medical centers. They don't pay property taxes. And and um, so they've been growing. They provide lots of, you know, well-paying jobs. That's great. But they they're, they're, they don't provide the same amount of benefit in terms of the city's budget. So having these, these discussions about pilots or, you know, where to find an adequate level of revenues when so much of your tax base. I mean, if all the action in your tax base is on the nonprofit level and your for-profit, the for-profit side, not a lot happening, then that does tend to create a kind of imbalance and you know, very few cities have come to a really adequate solution with that issue. Yeah, I wonder if the day will come when um, those entities that are quote unquote nonprofit are just put on the tax rolls like like other properties are and what that could mean to uh, cities who often find themselves financially strapped because entities are, are buying everything up. Well, it's really complicated because when you talk about, you know, uh, hospitals, you know, most of their money is coming from the government indirectly one way or the other. So whether it's, you know, Medicaid or some other Medicare. So if you're, you know, if you're taxing them, you know, maybe you're increasing the revenues coming into city governments, but you would be increasing costs for government on some other end. So it's a very complicated issue. You know, when we, you know, came up with these ideas to keep public charities exempt from property taxes, we didn't envision the type of situation you'd have now where you have, you know, executives making millions of dollars a year, you know, sophisticated enterprises. But um, just just levying a property tax on them and taxing them um, like you would any other business is, um, you know, uh, probably not a good idea and certainly not practical in the near term. All right. Uh, Based upon your... um writing of this report. Did anything in her surprise you dramatically or was this pretty much what you expected to find? 
Well, I was, it was kind of what I expected to find. I mean, you know, I think there, I, look, I think there's an important discussion to be had about, you know, wh- that there are differences between these cities, um, that poverty is not necessarily destiny. There are poor cities that are doing okay. Some cities, you know, Pittsburgh has had just catastrophic population losses, and yet, you know, most people think Pittsburgh has been one of the most successful, uh, you know, one of the most inspiring comeback city stories in the nation. So, you know, we can't just be totally fatalistic. We, You know, city government, city officials can't throw up their hands and say, well, what do you expect? You know, China's just going to bury us. We have to focus on things that we can control and try to make improvements, even if those improvements are going to be marginal and they're not going to bring us back to the good old days. That's Stephen Ide, Senior Fellow for Urban Policy with the Manhattan Institute. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.